What's good? This is season three, episode two of We Be Imagining, y'all. You already know it's Khadijah Abdurrahman and my co-host Iman Bentel. What's good, Iman? I'm good, Khadijah. How are you today? I'm so excited because I finally finished editing our last episode and just pushed it out like three minutes before we hopped on this recording. And so I feel a sense of accomplishment. The podcast is real. Um, And I'm thrilled to have Andrew Bunny Wong. And please correct me if I mess up your name because people forever mess up my name. And it's very funny to me because the most common um, wrong pronunciation is Abdurham. And it's just like, if you're going to mispronounce a super Muslim name, how are you going to put a pork product in the middle? So I apologize. <laughs> no, you got <laughs> if it. I mispronounce it. All right, cool, cool, cool. Um, and so you you wanted to play bio roulette. So let's see how this goes. Uh, so Andrew Wang was born 1975 and is an American researcher and hacker who holds a PhD in electrical engineering from MIT, is the author of the freely available book, Hacking the Xbox, an introduction to reverse engineering. And as of 2012, resides in Singapore. Wang is a member of the Zeta Beta Tau fraternity and a res- resident advisor and mentor to hardware startups at Hacks, an early stage hardware accelerator and venture capital firm. So is there anything else you'd like to add to that um, kind of Wikipedia-ish bio? That's, uh, that's pretty good. It's about one of the most comprehensive bio shows I've ever gotten. So... <laughs> Cool. Well, one of the reasons I'm really excited to have you on the show is that Ilan and I were talking about how interesting it is that none of the people kind of in the AI ethics field that we're in um, ever talk about hardware whatsoever. And when I was seeing you give a talk around trust, it was interesting that it wasn't abstract at all. It was talking about verifiability and literally opening up and seeing the components. And can you believe that what you were told that you have received is actually in there? And like, what does it mean to make that process accessible? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm thrilled to have you on the show. And maybe we could start with that. For people that have no idea about what hardware is and why it matters, could you explain how you're thinking about it and thinking about trust? Yeah, sure. So... Um, I like to kind of start, you, you know, I, I think a lot of people have seen the movie, the matrix. Um, and there's that thing where, you know, uh, you can take the red pill or the blue pill and you basically wake up out of a simulation you're plugged into. Right. Um, sort of hardware is the matrix in a way. It's like, it's sort of like if your hardware isn't doing what you think it does, you can't win in the software world. Right. So if if someone gave you a piece of hardware that masquerades like the computer you think it is, it's doing all the things you, that you think it's supposed to be doing, but secretly on the inside, it's, um, you know, keeping away secrets or logging your passwords or, you know, doing some other things that you don't expect to be doing. Um, no amount of software can detect that because it happens at a layer below the software level. And so... Um, you have to be able to trust at the end of the day, you really need to be able to trust your hardware. If you want to have any sort of uh, basis of reality uh, to start, to start judging things from. But I, I think the, the point Khadija was making is, is exactly uh, the thing that comes to mind. They, you know, the framing device is always uh, the black box when you're talking about machine learning models or, or algorithmic decision systems. Um, and it seems like we've abstracted away from the, the boxes that the numbers are actually coming out of. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm just hoping you could talk a little bit about some specific examples of um, why we should be hesitant to trust the hardware we're using. Right, right. So, um, 
I mean, I, typically the the world that I I come from isn't directly intersected with uh, you know AI, but it's more intersected with um, security and privacy. So uh, actually, very recently there was a specific example of uh, it was presented at the at the uh, CCC online. I, f- I forget the name of the guy, but he's he's in Germany and he had a um, implant put into his secure phone. He's a reporter. Um, and he has this phone that he uses for making secure phone calls, a specific device. And, uh, and ju- it just so happened that the display on the device had gotten discolored because of some sort of heat issue or something like that. And he, he asked to get it replaced. And when they opened it up, they found on the inside, there was a very sophisticated recording device that was actually, um, able to make a copy of, everything the guy was saying, um, store it to a little bit of memory, and then based upon presumably a remote RF command, do a readout. So he could be under surveillance and no one would be able to know about it. And this is supposed to be like a secure device that was given to him that had all the encryption keys and you know was, was supposed to be essentially unbreakable security, right? And so um, this is like a, a concrete example that's actually happened. Um, if you need me to look up the name of the guy, I can find it. I just, the name escapes me right now. But um, but th- this is sort of like okay, you can build these complicated systems to try and guarantee someone's security and privacy, but if someone goes ahead and modifies the hardware underneath you, it's all meaningless at the end of the day. Cool. One of the questions that I had that I thought was interesting was um, <clears throat> I was watching your 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 conversation on Adafruit. You know, Elon is always criticizing my pronunciation. I don't know if that's right either. Um, but I was watching your your, your interview there. And um, when you kept referring to your community, it was a hobbyist community and making the comparison that uh, when the iPhone came out, like it was almost very similar to kind of the set of materials that a hobbyist would start out with uh, when they were building something. And so what's interesting to me is that kind of the the, foref- the forefront of what hobbyists are doing are reflected in kind of the industrial scale deployment of what we're interacting with, you know, maybe with the exception of the software component. Um, and why is it that at this point, um, hobbyists are so, uh, I'm trying to think of the word that I want to say, but like so ahead or so reflective of kind of the depth of knowledge in a way that I'm not sure is true um, of other aspects of the supply chain. Yeah, so, sorry. I'm yeah. I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember that that particular topic because I think I think the the the. I, I know the interview you're talking about. Um, and I'm trying to remember the exact thread because there's a couple threads I pull on uh, with respect to sort of like the the harbor primitives that people have. One of the one of them is a comment about how, um, essentially, and I think this might be the one. This might have been the one I'm talking about. Is that um. Technology is is now getting to the point where uh, what you find inside uh, the Raspberry Pi, the same CPU inside the Raspberry Pi, is is eighty percent similar to what you would find inside of a smartphone uh, these days, right? And um, and that's sort of a I think that was pulling on the thread of the fact that Moore's law is sort of slowing down, and that um, technology is starting to you know kind of level level out a bit. There's not as big of a gap between who's you know, at the very cutting edge and what sort of hobbyists can sort of access. Um, that that being said, there's still, you know, a an appreciable gap, but it's like sort of, you know, you know, you've got, you know, Raspberry Pi, you've got, you know, sort of a quad core, 
you know, ARM CPU. And then sort of in your phones, you have these, you know, octa-core devices, which, you know, can only have, I think, four active ones running or whatever for power limitations. So substantially similar in terms of performance inside the phone itself. And, and I think that, I think the point I was trying to make was that there, you know, as these, as the sort of technology stabilizes, you'll start to see um, similar technologies uh, reaching down into the hobbyist platform. So as Moore's law slows down, we'll start to see that gap between what's in the Raspberry Pi inside the phone narrow even more. Um, because uh, eventually what happens is all, the, all that technology that was put, you know, the expensive technology that was put into the, into the Apple phone depreciates over time, becomes cheaper, and then finds its way down into the hobby supply chain. So I, I think that was the polarity of the, the discussion that I was, was having there. But I, I, I could have been a different thread because I had a couple of different threads that, that kind of pull on that. that no, analogy. thank you. That was great because I know that my question was somewhere buried under a lot of preposition. So I appreciate it. That actually was my, that kind of answers what I was asking. Yeah. Is there a particular area in that, like, as that mechanism happens that that you're kind of most excited about uh, so this is this is referring particularly to sort of the moore's law yeah uh, right like the idea that like last year's technology is is more or less as good and so anyone can just use that instead of using the new thing yeah i mean i think i think the so there was actually a a, a problem for a while um there used to be I don't, I don't know if people have heard of these co companies, but there's companies like uh, Thinking Machines. They made a, made a, the Connection Machine, um, and and some other sort of big supercomputer like Cray. These guys who used to make these big computers, and they were they were all based on these custom chips and hugely parallel systems. And then they all got killed in the in like the nineties and the two thousands by by what they dubbed at the time the attack of the killer micros. And uh, this was just because Moore's law that the and it just so, for people who aren't familiar, Moore's law is just a, a phenomenon that refers to the pace of technology getting faster, cheaper, better all the time. The fact that um, if your if your software ran too slow on your computer today, you didn't have to rewrite it. You would wait a year and a half, and all of a sudden your computer got twice as fast. And now all of a sudden that same slow piece of software runs just fine. Right? That was sort of like that was the phenomenon that was happening. Um, you know, in the in the you know early two thousands, late nineties. And that <clears throat> there was this, there's this thing that would happen is that if you spent time at sort of a hobby level or even at a system level, these sort of system level companies trying to optimize something, by the time you finish optimizing that system, the chips, the next generation chips is so fast, you wasted your whole time, right? And so a lot of companies that were doing this sort of disappeared uh, off of the scene. And, and the hobby scene more or less disappeared as well. There's almost no point in anyone trying to do anything at a hobby level, because by the time you shipped it, a product that was just half the price and twice as good would be out there in the market. Um, that Moore's Law has sort of you know, slowed down quite a bit. It's not dead in the sense that uh, it's never going to happen again. Like, you know, it's not, you know, it's not that we don't have incre uh, increments in technology, but the spacing, the time between them is much longer now. We're waiting uh, instead of 18 months for a doubling of, 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 of a particular uh, constant, we're waiting uh, 24, 36 months, right? And um, that creates a amount of time where if someone wants to spend like a year or two perfecting something, um, you actually then still have a year to sort of make money off of that improvement before the next generation comes out and wipes out your, your improvements, right? 
And so we're starting to see that uh, a revival of, um, of uh, you know, kind of actually the funny, sort of this whole sort of IoT explosion and all these little gadgets that are ending up everywhere in these small hardware startups is a reflection of that uh, projected onto the real world that, you know, sort of we now have people who are, again, building systems that, uh, that put things together in novel ways that can innovate and they don't, they're not instantly sort of you know, swallowed up by, you know, just a faster Intel CPU that came along and made it irrelevant, you know, six months later or something like that. And kind of in that context, I was just thinking about your TED talk, uh, which was two years ago now. Um, and that, that I do remember more clearly and how to articulate basically the, the contrast that you were posing about the IP, um, the IP framework in the U S versus in Shenzhen, China, and the one in China kind of encouraging, this fecundity of ideas and, and the way that we have viral memes of cats, um, having viral memes of technology where you'd have, you know, a thousand different iterations on a phone and looking in all different shapes that are kind of yeah. made impossible here, yeah. where even the shape of the dimensions of the iPhone are patented. Right. Um, and kind of since in the time that has elapsed from that TED Talk, um, how are you feeling about the possibilities for innovation, kind of given the situation in Singapore, U.S. versus China? Yeah, I mean, I, I still hold to my thesis that um, a, a a less restrictive um, IP regime can be good for innovation. So, so the the core the core point of the and a lot of times people actually get the 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 point of the talk wrong. Some people think I'm like, oh, we shouldn't have patents at all, or we shouldn't have any sort of IP protection. That's not it. The the core point is actually that the the lifetimes are way too long. Right, right now. Patents have a lifetime of 20 years. 20 years ago is year 2000. I was just talking about how technology is completely different back then, right? Um, it doesn't make sense for patents to last that long in electronics. And so they, they create these virtual monopolies that um, lock out all competition. Um, there needs to be some, obviously, some protection that allows you know, people to invest and, and do, do these types of things. And, and so the China ecosystem was the counterexample to that because the, the problem is is a lot of people be like well your thesis of of looser ip restrictions won't work because we see no examples of that working and therefore it can't work right you know, it's, it's sort of like you know and the reason why you see no examples of that working is because well no one actually puts a lot of stuff out there in the open source domain for hardware and 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 so it's a circular argument of like well we don't see enough you know uh people sharing stuff in hardware and that is a indication that the system couldn't possibly work of, of sharing couldn't possibly work, right? Um, and so the interesting thing about the China ecosystem is sort of okay. Well, let's let's look at a uh, ecosystem that had to reinvent sort of IP traditions from scratch. I, China, in many ways, is sort of a Galapagos island. It's a very isolated um, from the Western traditions when it comes to IP. And so the the sort of the 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 flippant way to put Chinese IP is that they just steal everything, right? It's actually a little more subtle that because you know every human wants to have some guarantee of a profit. And they know no one's going to invest in anything, obviously, if they know that that next moment it's going to get stolen. You still have to have a moat or a barrier of some type. And so, in the Chinese ecosystem, what happens is they they said, okay, well, the ideas have more value if they're remixed. Things things are more valuable if you can go ahead and interoperate. Things are more valuable if you can trade. If you can go ahead and do these types of things. So we're going to we're going to go ahead and say um, the penalty for sort of copying ideas isn't isn't as is important, but really the value is in the making, the manufacturing of these types of things. And so 
owning the plant that can produce this thing and having the jobs and the workers to do it and the, and the skills and the training to create the best version of that is where the value is. And so um, the result of that shift in priorities is they still do have you know people who invest immense amounts of money to build production capability and to build things that actually work really well. Um, but uh, the focus is now more on sort of the the actual supply chain and and the production of the goods as opposed to simply the protection of the idea itself and then devaluing everything else beside it. And so what comes out we see comes out of the Chinese ecosystem, you have people who are very capable, people who can sort of and when I say capable is like they have huge different varied capabilities to produce different things. So um, the classic example was the the hoverboard phenomenon, if you remember that, the, the sort of two-wheeled sort of skateboard they sort of stood on, but it was like a two-wheeled and... and, and oh, the hoverboard, it. yeah. Yeah, the hoverboard, right. You know, the thing that Justin Bieber wrote out in, in, in that one episode and it went crazy, right? Everyone wanted one. Um, Kadija, you're going to get them for your kids. <laughs> well, they also started uh, blowing up. Yeah, right, yeah. right. They also started blowing up, right? So, um, but, but there was a period of time where uh, you know there was an American inventor who invented the hoverboard, actually has a patent on it, and then there are all these hoverboards that appeared all over the internet, and people are like, "Who's investing the billions of dollars to create all these knockoff hoverboards?" Like, you know, this is huge ecosystem of factories that sprung up overnight. Actually, th that wasn't the case at all. There was this enormous capability in trying to produce things like e-bikes and e-scooters, and 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 different types of related devices, but because they owned all the tooling, they all the know-how, all the skills, the moment they actually saw that thing come out, they knew exactly how it worked, right? Like you didn't need a, a PhD in anything to sort of understand you had a little gyro and a feedback loop. Like this is like, this is like if you ever took a sort of a control theories class, the inverted pendulum is like a, like a, you know, first week lecture type of thing, right? And so people saw that and they're like, oh, we can, we can build one of those, right? Is just a couple of weeks, right? We just take some, take the stuff we have in our scooters, put the frames from e-bikes, put the batteries down together, and then boom, everyone in China was making one of these and sending the United States, right? And so um, that's sort of the the power of having all of that manufacturing, latent manufacturing capability laying around, and the, and the ability to sort of like talk and trade ideas between all the engineers and 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 sort of freely put things together. Do you see kind of historical parallels between? innovation in Shenzhen and kind of the like workshop innovation of the, the early industrial revolution? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I, the point has been made not by just me, but other people that like um, there's parallels to the, um, the, the Japanese ecosystem actually coming up. Um, if you guys, you guys probably are not as old as me, but if you were around in the eighties, you might've seen a movie called Gung Ho, which was making sort of, commentary about the the Japanese copying of US cars and then Toyota came out of nowhere and sort of ate up all of the all the car manufacturing right so and then also in the in the industrial revolution the Americans were were stealing all the European steel and train technology and and building trains and stuff that sort of thing so we there's there's definitely this 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 pattern we see over and over again of like well you know um in a new ecosystem Everyone benefits from sort of sharing of ideas and, and letting a th thousand flowers bloom. And what happens is eventually you get these larger established companies that want to, you know, grow like big trees and, and bring out big branches and shade out the ground and prevent new saplings from coming up and competing with them. And at the end of the day, one of the tools they have for that is the IP and patent protection. And they, they raise barriers for competition to come up in their ecosystem 
And, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons why societies um, support it because those big companies create lots of jobs and they, you know, have connections to politicians or wherever it is. You can have all the arguments you want, but that's definitely a pattern. And, and I don't think China is going to be an exception to that. Like as China's ecosystem starts to become bigger and more established, those guys don't want competition, right, from all the, all the little guys uh, hanging out. And so, they, you know, I, I would predict that, you know, in a matter of, you know, decades, if not years, you'll start to see China internally being like, oh, oh, all of a sudden IP is very important because we want to have these established interests, uh, you know, sort of maintain power under sort of the guise of some IP law or whatever it is at the end of the day. It's, it's just sort of a pattern that happens. Um, but in, in, in particular, in the context of hardware, it was very hard um, to sort of say that this could work because everyone's like, well, hardware is different. And, you know, everyone's like, we don't have any examples of it. And yes, we tried the open hardware thing in the Western ecosystem, but we couldn't get enough critical mass behind it to really make it, a, you know, as much of an economic phenomenon as it was in China. Um, and they would use that as evidence that, you know, that model doesn't work. They would say, oh, because you can't get it at work, it, it, it can't work, right? Um, and then I would sort of point to the, to what happened in China is like, well, no, it could work if we all agreed on these, you know, on this perspective and these rules. Um, it's just that it benefits, I think, a lot more people to have the incumbent rules in the, in, in the Western ecosystem right now than to, than to change them. And to step uh, down just one level of abstraction from the legal frameworks, one of the things that stuck out to me when I saw a talk where you were explaining about your childhood and taking things apart and had a stack of um, kind of these different motherboards and things like that, is, you know, growing up, I, I was born in 88. So, you know, I, I remember when I got my first Walkman and then the Discman. Uh -huh. And I feel like I was surrounded by kind of relatively cheap um, consumer level electronics. And now yeah. when I'm thinking about my house, um, you know, because things have kind of, there's like a level of a singularity, like we have an iPad and an iMac or something, you know, like one kind of higher, more expensive device, you know, I would die if uh, one of them tried to take it apart. We don't yeah. have so much the plethora of like, low level or kind of cheaper electronics for them to take apart. And it just, you know, hearing you talk, I was thinking about that kind of canonical thing that people said ever since like Michael Pollan stuff around food came out, you know, that kids think that food comes from the supermarket. They forget about <laughs> the whole, you know, like farming cows, et cetera. Yeah. And there's a level of, you know, there's, it's like a moment of revelation when people see what's inside of the phone. The idea that there's like a, a set of cheap parts is maybe like a New York Times op-ed, but like in reality, that's not something that a lot of people are doing. Um, and I'm just curious about how you're thinking about this kind of pedagogically. I know you don't have kids, but just thinking about how do we move towards kind of a greater uh, section of society being educated and informed and having kind of the assertiveness to be able to take things apart and even even I think most people would not forget about even opening the phone to discover the recording device, like you mentioned with the reporter with the secure phone. Yeah. That wouldn't even have occurred to them. Like we saw right. that around Signal, that yeah. people didn't even think about IMEs. Like that just right. doesn't, it's not on the radar at all. So I'm just wondering how were you thinking about bringing more people into, you know, the set of considerations that you're thinking about? Yeah. I mean, I, you've, you've touched on sort of like a, kind of one of my... I guess maybe you could say a mission if I ever had one or something like that. Um, I, I do really worry that uh, we conflate technology with magic at the end of the day. And um, there are these patterns you already have of like, you know, Apple tries to create like the genius bar and they have these 
objects of almost biblical beauty, right? You know, that that are seamless and have no screws and just work like magic, right? And, and um, you know, you can really sort of see this sort of almost religious nature that that people are ascribing to these devices. They don't understand how they work and, and they're sort of at the will of these devices. Um, that trend disturbs me um, because I don't, I don't think that we make technology to be slaves to it, right? We don't make technology to be controlled by it at the end of the day. Um, we should make technology and we should feel always like we are in control of the technology, not in control of us. And, and if we ever get to the point where like, huh, the technology is controlling my life, you have to say, wait, time out. Why is it, right? Why am I not in charge of my life? Because, because the moment we don't, we stop doing that and we allow it to happen, I think we, we end up in a, a potentially very dark place um, as individuals and perhaps as humanity itself, right? So one thing I like to remind people of is that everything that is in technology, particularly a computer, we, a human has made. It's not, it's not like we got it from an alien or like, you know, some magical person who couldn't, who you couldn't be did it, right? You know, that's a real conspiracy theory, though. Like that is definitely <laughs> going around. Like Elon and I were cracking up. Somebody put on Twitter, um, "What well, say it again, Elon?" It was about Elon Musk and um, Jeff Bezos that they were like from the future and like clearly yeah, why, because why they, why they like trying to get to Mars if if uh, if they're not just mm -hmm. aliens who are just yeah. trying to get home and they're stuck <laughs> right, on Earth. Right. Yeah, no, that I'm is funny. I mean, it's like has that nine eleven is an inside job vibe, you know? But there is an aspect of yeah, like people are like robots take over our jobs and over here like scanning their biometrics into iPhones, just like accepting it as whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess I I'm pretty sure that these guys are human. I mean, I haven't met them personally, right? And I haven't, <laughs> you know, I haven't taken. You don't them ascribe apart. to the conspiracy, right? Right. But uh, you know, at you know, contrast that to sort of like, it's sort of, I find it funny how we, we, you know, like this whole COVID pandemic, we're sort of like, oh yeah, like we're just going to make a vaccine, just put in ourselves, right? It's easy. And, and I'm just like, there's so little we understand about how we actually work ourselves. When I, when I was like asking questions about how the human immune system worked, you know, why can't, why does it take so long to do these trials? How come we can't, you know, sort of figure out if the vaccine works or not? They're like, we don't even know actually how our body remembers you know, we were sick. We have these theories, right? But we don't actually know, right? So, so if you ever want to be like, oh, there's some sort of magic, something I said, biology itself that was evolved, right? Like we, we don't, there's not a human who sort of constructed our our immune system, right? We we've been trying to figure it out, and anyone who pretends that we actually understand all this sort of stuff is, you know, like being a little too assertive about what we know. It's a very very different situation with a computer, right? Like every single every piece of that exists because you know someone had thought of it and put it together and built it right um so so we can understand a computer much more than we can understand a human at the end of the day um and i like to remind people of that and um i feel like you know i don't think everyone needs to necessarily take a course in electronics or they need to um know how to program a computer but i think they need to know that this is a thing you can do and if you ever felt like your electronics was controlling you or you couldn't do something with, you know, there's something you wanted to do, like, you know, why, why can't I get my data out of the cloud? Or why do I feel like, you know, 
you know, I can't, con- you know, I don't have privacy or security or whatever, what are these types of things. There are alternatives. There are actually, you know, open source alternatives to a lot of these things where you can sort of see all the source code. You can start your own server farm. You can run your own services. You can build your own hardware. All these sorts of things are things that actual human beings can do, right? Um, and and I don't want people to forget that, right? Because then, because then the moment you sort of say like, oh, actually, like this is all beyond me, and like aliens did it or whatever it is, then then you sort of you've you've given up and and you've sort of ceded that that autonomy, that control, um, which I think is which I think is very important for people to remember that they have. I think uh, that was first of all just like very interesting. I I did want to move on to a slightly different topic, which. You do have a, a kind of new device you're, you're currently working on, but I was actually hoping you could start by talking about the uh, the introspection engine and yeah. actually the design process behind that. And kind of you you've kind of said that it it, it didn't quite work out, no. and that kind of leads you into the 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 new thing you're coming out with the precursor yeah. device. Yeah, so yeah. so more from a kind of design perspective, like. What was that device? Why why did it need to exist? And kind of why was it insufficient from a design perspective? Right, right, right. So so the core problem was that um, um, you have you know journalists and activists, people who are willing to risk everything to sort of tell the truth, and there's people who likewise would risk everything to shut them up. Um, and Ed Snowden actually can't contacted me, and he's an activist, right? And and he. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing your audience is familiar with what, he, what he's done. Um, he's, he's had to go through this process and he wanted uh, sort of some help figuring out how to make a device to help reduce the risk for people who are like him, right? Um, and the, the core problem is, is that, you know, your phone could be uh, a, a surveillance device, you know, it can turn on the microphone when you don't think it is. It can turn on the radio when you don't think it is. It can be transmitting things. You know, how do you know that your phone isn't ratting out your 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 information, right? So what we came up with the thought initial thought was that well, you know, if we could just sort of observe what the radios are doing at a harder level. Again, this is sort of going back to the original thing where it says we can break out of the matrix by taking you know the red pill or the blue pill. Um, the problem is the problem. The matrix problem with with a, a phone is that you can say, okay, I'm going to put it in airplane mode, and so you now you look at the screen and there's that little airplane on it, and you say, oh, I must be safe, but that's just the airplane telling you it's in airplane mode. It doesn't actually essentially have any link to the hardware radio itself. It could still have a process on the inside that's that's blasting out your your information, right? Um, and so we can't trust the UI because it's still within that 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 box of the hardware, and so. The, the proposal was sort of, let's break out the matrix. Let's go ahead and put an introspection engine. And what I mean is it's a device that can, that can actually look at the hardware signals outside of the software itself. So the software wouldn't even know this thing existed. We were going to go ahead and put that phone in, in with another device on it that could observe its every move on the radio. And if it decided to talk on the radio, we would know, right? Whether, whether or not it said it was doing it, we would know. And we built it. And uh, we put a phone in airplane mode and we are like, oh, okay, cool. It's pretty quiet. And they're like, oh, the phone's talking. What's this, right? Oh, okay. Well, now we must've found something pretty interesting. And then we sort of dug around a little more and we looked at like, it was, it was an iPhone and we looked at sort of some forum posts and, and it turns out actually Apple openly admits that in airplane mode, it will turn on Wi-Fi and it'll turn on GPS. They don't tell you why, but 
you know, this it, airplane mode doesn't mean radio's off is, is what it turns out. Um, and it's a vendor thing, right? We don't know why, uh, but we suspect it, you know, the, the announcement sort of coincided with the time when Apple is trying to build up its mapping program. And so it makes sense, you know, from a standpoint of just, you know, improving its maps that even if you put an airplane mode, maybe you'll go ahead and do a quick scan around, see what Wi-Fi is around, what your GPS is, tag it and say, okay, you know, we're, we're building, we're sort of helping build up that map database. It sounds like a perfectly innocuous thing. It's probably okay in your terms of service, whatever it is. The problem is, is that behavior is relatively indistinguishable from the stuff that we wanted to prevent from happening. Right, that's the the bad stuff inside your phone would also have that sort of behavior as well. So when the vendor is misbehaving just as much as the bad stuff is misbehaving, we couldn't the introspection couldn't tell between the two, and we would just have a lot of false signals that would cause people to panic when they shouldn't be panicking, right? Um, and so we decided that because the system was so complex, and because the iPhone itself was closed source, we couldn't get any insight as to what the policies were and what the radios were set to. Um, it wasn't going to be an effective method of empowering these people to have the tools they need to sort of report, record, and communicate in the field um, when, they're, when they're at great risk. Um, so that, that was the, the introspection engine and what happened, the architecture of it, and, and sort of how it failed. Um, before I move on to the next thing, does, is that, was that clear or <laughs> anything you wanted to ask questions about, I guess? It was very clear. I just I had a little bit of an adjacent question, sure. uh, which you touched on a little bit prior. But basically, you know, tech ultimately is a tool. And I totally agree with you. You know, it's something that we should have control over, not that has control over our lives. But if I pick up a hammer, you know, without going to like get a PhD on hammers, you know, it's pretty obvious what it does. If we think about technology during the time of the Luddites, the reason why they could break the machine is it was like pretty clear where were the like material points of intervention. Um, and I think it didn't necessarily start with the personal computer, but in that moment where Mac comes out with this personal computer with a graphic user interface, I kind of, in my mind, that's like where things really turn to this level of obscurity. And it just is always impressive to me that people don't understand, you know, we're all constantly, particularly in like Western nations, we're all constantly interacting with these electronics, but because it's mediated through this user interface, so much of it is obscure to us. Mm -hmm. um, and so... But I mean, those are kind of my thoughts. I was wondering if you could share some insights into why why is this so obscured, you know, kind of to the average person? Yeah, I mean, I, I unfortunately, I kind of blame some vendors for being much more obscure about um, things than others. So uh, because of my biases and whatnot, I, I tend not to use um, Apple and iOS products. So I'm not as familiar with them. But every time I, I try to use them, I'm shocked at how little of the function is actually revealed to the user. Um, uh, like on an Android phone, I'm used to sort of being able to have a program that can like give me raw GPS coordinates and the sensor data output of the light sensor and, and, the, and the accelerometer, like all this stuff I can get like just raw numbers out of it. Um, and on the iPhone, you can't do that. Um, a similar kind of problem actually happened during the pandemic. People are trying to make uh, contact tracing software using Bluetooth. And on Android phones, you could do it because you could sort of reach into the Bluetooth layer and sort of repurpose it for a thing that wasn't orig originally designed for because you had that kind of visibility and control of the hardware. And Apple sort of presents this abstract Bluetooth device 
interface to even the programmers and the programmers couldn't even like get around it to make it do what they needed to do to, to build contact tracing applications. Um, and so um, in a way, I, I feel the, the theory, I think, for Apple um, behind this is, is well-intentioned, right? They want safe defaults that would empower people to use technology um, and you didn't have to deal with a whole lot of stuff. You know, Apple just got it right. That was the whole idea. We'll do, we'll do it right for you. This technology is hard. Let's do it right. You, you need to get on with your life. You just need to make calls and check email and get social media, take pictures. We'll, we'll make sure it happens right for you and, and we'll do it tastefully, right? Uh, that's a great theory. And I absolutely think technology should work that way most of the time. But the corollary thing that they also did was they didn't let you peel that back, right? If they, if they, if they gave it to you in a way that just worked, but then you can hit a button and you could actually get access to all the underlying sensors, I wouldn't have as much of an objection to the system. But now I think what Apple is finding is that they do it right. And then by not, by sort of then giving you only one way to do it, it's the Apple way or no other way. Um, they have much more control. They have much more loyalty. They have much more buying from the user base. It's more monetizable. Like, you know, it, it, it's good for their business, but I think it's bad ultimately for the user's independence at the end of the day. And, and, and in a way, it's, it's, it's not fundamentally not Apple's business for, to empower users to be independent to know what their devices do, right? They're a business. They want to make money. They want to, you know, they want to turn you into a, an annuity that keeps sending them money year after year because you have to. That's great for Apple at the end of the day. That's an awesome business model for them. It's a bad thing for maybe users at the end of the day if you don't want to be locked into that pattern of life, right? I mean, if you want to be, that's fine. Like, I, I'm no judgment, right? But I just, I don't, I don't like it. I, I kind of feel uneasy with with the general notion, though, of of sort of locking and not revealing these types of things. And so that might explain a little bit why. People have had some trouble discovering what's going underneath is because vendors have been hiding it. Um, I think probably for for business reasons, also you know ostensibly for customer support reasons. Like people say, oh well, you know if we give people the ability to reconfigure these things, they will, and then things will break, and then they'll call, and then it's a bad user experience, right? And so therefore we shouldn't show them anything they can't do because it's a better user experience. That's that's sort of ostensibly the a reasoning a, a yarn I hear a lot and. Um, yeah, I don't. This, I don't. This I don't also kind of uh, fits into this idea of like the the difference between hackability and openness, right? So like, oh, there's the there's the closed. You've you've written about this before, but the the kind of there's the closed source problem, which is which is kind of the the Apple situation. But even with open source things, right? If something is uh, sufficiently complex, it becomes very difficult for people to uh, play around with and understand as well. And trying to grapple with that too, because I come from the open source camp, and one of the yarns that we like to tell in open source is, "Oh, well, if it's open, you can you can you can change it. You can do what you want, right? We're done, right? Good enough. Uh, read the code if you don't if you want to figure it out, right? <laughs> Very sort of a little hostile, almost, right? Uh, in a, in a way, if you, in almost a little bit too much, like if you're not smart enough, you don't deserve to know, right? I I don't like that attitude at all. I, I really feel like that's not empowerment. If 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 you're trying to just prove to someone that you're really smart and and yeah you put it all out there as evidence that you're smart but then you don't actually try to empower other people to use it at the end of the day um, and not not that I'm saying that's what that's that's the an extreme of what happens um, in some cases but a lot of times genuinely people just don't put the effort in to document 
what they've done. Um, and they've done great work, but then people can't figure it out and it might as well just be a closed blob. No one ever actually can hack it at the end of the day. And, and I understand that, you know, documentation is hard. Features are what sell. We only have 24 hours in a day, but, uh, you know, even just a little readme or a little bit of summary of what you did, I think can go a long way. And, um, if you think about things on a, on a much longer time scale, like a, like a, you know, a centuries long or millennial million long time scale, we, you know, we have to think about who's going to maintain this infrastructure, uh, you know, when we're gone, right? At the end of the day, we need new engineers. We need people who are inspired to do this sort of stuff. Uh, and if you don't leave notes for those people, you know, what happens? I, 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 during the pandemic, actually, I played this game with my partner. I was like, so how much of this world could we lose in the next year before we forget how to make things? Like, like what percentage of humans could be, for example, like we didn't know what the what the fit, you know the the mortality rate of of COVID nineteen was. What if it was like five or ten percent, like really high? What at what what's that number at which point we we sort of lose enough knowledge that hasn't been documented that we now end up with like stuff we just can't build anymore because we don't have the people who know how to build that anymore, right? Because the documentation was too hard, it was incomplete, or whatever it was, right? And I and and I. I I kind of spitballed it actually is a, is a disturbingly low number. I think just, you know, uh, just a small percentage in the right sectors. Um, and we would just, the world would just fall apart, right? The tech world would fall apart because there's so much that we don't even know how it's made these days um, or how to maintain at the end of the day. So I don't know. I, that, that's, that's a, that's a. Bunny, that's super bleak. <laughs> no. Yeah, that got so dark. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, okay. it, got real, it got real real quick. Well, okay. Uh-huh. I mean, it, uh, I mean, okay. Sorry, sorry to be so bleak about it, but it, but 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 it. No, 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 it's real. No, what yeah, we're here for it. <laughs> I, I go to these. I go to these conferences. I used I used to be in chip design. Um, and there's this, this conference called ISSCC that would happen every year in San Francisco. And I walk in the hall, and like it's the who's who of everyone who does chips. I realized, like Jesus Christ, if this building fell down on on this on this on this audience here, we wouldn't have no more chips. None. Like like everyone who knew how to make chips was in in that hall right now, right? Like like I was, it was just like, oh my God, what do we like? Is this a good thing or a bad thing that the community is so small of people who who do this sort of stuff, right? It's 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 actually it's disturbingly fragile because because um we've moved so quickly and we've taught so little to other people and there's so much just sort of in the heads of these graying people it's been a generation right literally everyone who made this technology is still alive more or less to first order right we haven't had to deal with generational die-off yet we haven't had to pass the baton in a genuine fashion to a new generation can we do it i don't know that's a that's a big question to me yeah, that's real. Um, definitely bleak. But I was just thinking that we have a historical precedence for this. One of the things I'm like also obsessed with fungi and mushrooms. And I was seeing Paul Stamets give some talk about, oh, you know, agaricon and creating, I think, penicillin, um, penicillin, penicillin antibiotics and making this discovery. The irony being that there were indigenous people who had previously made this discovery, but were exterminated through smallpox. Um, so there definitely is a historical precedence for like killing off the sources of knowledge. 
And just, I was thinking about your point about de-skilling and that's something that like police abolitionists talk a lot about um, and the way that we've learned, we've, we've, we've lost our skills related to uh, interpersonal mediation, conflict mediation, um, or even thinking about like microwavable meals. Like one of the big things that happened when the shelter in place order was people were saying the New Yorkers are going to die because no one knows how to cook. Um, so, you know, but what you're raising is even graver stakes. So I just had two kind of divergent questions, I guess. So the last episode of our second season featured Noah Fian, and he was talking about this project at the New York Times R&D lab, The Listening Table. Have you seen that? Uh, I have not. Sorry. Um, well, basically, it was just uh, it's a table that was recording uh, the voices of people at meetings, and it was designed against all types of misuse. So nothing was stored in the cloud. It was stored locally in a, oh, cool. in a computer placed in the center, and then it was deleted after 28 days. It didn't keep names. Oh, nice. um, but one of the things that stood out to me was um, as far as doing human centered design is that he made all of the things he started off trying to make think about what is a really nice table what's the most tableist table and that people would enjoy sitting at um, but also anything that was augmented for new kind of like technical capabilities was like overemphasized in the aesthetic so it was very clear to people as a way to offer them um, space for consent so my first question is um, how do you think about uh, these ethical questions through your practice of developing hardware? And then the second question I had was just, I feel like for the kind of lay person who's thinking about the social impact of technology, Shoshana Zuboff's uh, surveillance capitalism is one of the big things. And right now people are all upset about mis and disinformation and then like the monetizing of extracted data. Um, which has a lot of limitations for a variety of reasons. But the second question is basically, how do you kind of assess the political situation we're in in regards to tech bringing in the hardware part? Hmm. Okay. Those are big questions. Let me let me see if I can summarize the, the first one. The first one was you're asking sort of like what, it, what, is, what is maybe the, the um, tech creator's ethical obligations in terms of creating a space uh, with consent um in in the just well, in natural ethical, design sorry go ahead but also like tangibly like it was basic in the sense that sorry i have to mute you when i'm talking to you because i can't hear myself um in the fact that it was tangible and that he made it just very obvious where's the part that's recording so we have a lot of ethical conversations but kind of thinking about what when you're designing something what are the like concrete material things that you're thinking about to make people aware of um kind of the themes that you've raised yeah I mean, I mean, from a from a, I personally like to um, make the technology quite forward, right? So, um, like on this new project I have going called Precursor, which is sort of like supposed to be a phone that you can trust and 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 you know, ostensibly you could make it secure it um, if you put all the trusted parts in it. Um, you know, I actually don't put a microphone in it. The idea is that you have to plug in a headset for it to record you. So this is very tangible, physical, um, act of consent that has to happen for you to allow the machine to record you, right? Um, and I also designed it so that the like, screws are actually very visible in the front. It was, it, was, it was actually, it invites you to sort of take it apart and look in the inside um, in a non-destructive way. It says like, it's okay to open me up. It's, you know, I don't try to hide on my insides wherever it is with these adhesives and these things that you know you have to crack off the glass or wherever it is to get on the inside just take off the screws look inside it's fine right 
So, so I try to put some language in my design to enforce that feeling, but that I, I would have to admit, I'm probably extremely weird <laughs> from that standpoint. Um, really, really the aesthetic has, has re- become much more of a, um, you know, glass slabs that work like magic. And the more you can do with it, the less, unless you show the better, right? Like sort of this, um, you know, if you almost look at today's modern surveillance device, the Alexas and the Google Homes, they're just little pucks, right? You have no idea the, the incredible amount of computing power they have access to, the microphones, the directional microphones, the noise canceling, you know, the attention words, all that sort of stuff. It's all hidden on the inside. You walk into someone's house, you don't even know if it's there, right? You know, sometimes I walk into people's houses and I'll just, I'll just sort of say, Alexa, are you here, right? Just to see if the, the darn thing is even present so I know if it's there or not. It's sometimes, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I do think it is a problem a bit how much technology and how small technology is becoming and how hard it is to sort of design and become obvious. But un- unfortunately, I think there is, there is a, there's a school of aesthetic, which is very popular, which is, you know, hide the technology, right? We want things to look more organic, look more magical, and, and that's more pleasing to us. We want things to just work like we saw in sci-fi. Um, I, you know, I personally don't like it, but I can see why a lot of people enjoy that, that aesthetic. It's, it, it does look good um, at the end of the day. Uh, does that kind of answer that first question? For sure, thank you. Um, can you remind me the second question? Because <laughs> I'm bad at I'm, I have a short memory. I remember goldfish. <laughs> Sorry. Well, first of all, it's like three a.m. where you are in the yeah, yeah, o'clock yeah. in the afternoon. It's a little bit better for us. Um, the second question was I was just saying like the average layperson is uh, reading Shoshana Zuboff's Surveillance Capitalism, and to the degree that they are thinking about the social impact of technology. I think there, you know, there's a big conversation now around mis and disinformation on social media. And I guess the second aspect going to Shoshana Zuboff's point is that there's this commodification of data extracted without our consent. Um, and so there's a, various limitations to both of those conversations. But I was wondering if you could speak about how would you frame the like current situation that we're facing in relationship to tech, um, kind of like politically, existentially uh, bringing in the hardware piece. Uh, so in particularly, it's just sort of like you're talking about the data collection issue and sort of the the monetization, involuntary sort of um, integration of ourselves into this digital ecosystem. I guess is it, is that what you're getting at, or or? Well, I'm get, I'm also asking is like that. So that's one thesis that's out there. Do you contest that? Do you feel like that's like an accurate uh, assessment of what's the kind of central issue that we're facing? Yeah, I, I mean, I, um, I think at the end of the day, there is a lot of data that gets collected about us, a lot of surveillance happens, probably more than we know. And in some societies, it's extremely prevalent. And it's just in your face, like, you know, in China, it's just there. Everyone knows they're under surveillance and all the data is collected about them at the end of the day. And then there's, you know, varying degrees of of how it happens and who you trust and what they do with that kind of data. I do worry about it. I do think that proper social guardrails as to what's considered acceptable to do with this type of data, we can end up in potentially dark places. There's a saying I like this, uh, that I've heard about sort of the way humans think, you know, humans think in terms of one, two, and then many at the end of the day. So, so once we get beyond a certain number of facts or opinions or voices or things that happen in our life, we, we sort of 
we can't keep track of it and we just sort of say, oh, a bunch of people said that, I'm going to believe it. Computers are unfortunately very good at many, right? They, it's, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. They're all different numbers to them and they can keep track of them really well. And I do worry that another human who effectively like- sort of get rid of a human's effective free will by sort of measuring what they are saying, creating synthetic feeds, things, you know, feeding them information that sort of overwhelms their ability to count it. So it sounds like many. And then the humans are more inclined to sort of be like, well, many people said that, therefore I'm going to believe it's it's true, right? There's a there's actually another research study I, I read recently that they, they tried to have um, violinists synchronize with each other, playing with headphones on that would add certain delays uh, to the sound. And and what they did is they created what's called a frustrated situation, whereas the violinists started to play more in sync, they would actually change the delay. And so it's actually impossible for all the violinists to sync up. And what they found was instead of humans taking the average of all of the delays and sort of going in the middle, they would just throw away one of the uh, sounds they couldn't make sense of and just sync to one, right? So So humans have a tendency when they're overwhelmed with conflicting information, not to take the weighted average of everything, but just to arbitrarily throw away a set of data that that isn't making sense to them, right? And so, I feel like part of what's what we're seeing today is that we're we're we're, we're we have these fire hoses of information coming into us. We don't have the time to make sense of it. We have to throw away part of this data. It's our nature to do that. When someone knows a lot about where we are and they want to influence what we think, they can sort of exploit that to go ahead and make us think things that we normally wouldn't think, right? And I worry, I, that's a big problem, right? I, I, that, that I kind of worry about in terms of, um, you know, targeted ads even. The whole point of a targeted ad is to sort of, you know, there's a world of different garbage cans you can buy. There's so many of them, you don't even have time to look at them. The targeted ad is going to go ahead and make you think that this is the cool tar- garbage can you should buy, right? By sending you ads and you'll see it on this page and that page. And eventually you're like, oh, this is the garbage can I want to buy, right? That's, that's sort of the whole point of targeted advertising, right? You can, see, you can see that sort of being used for things that are not as innocuous as getting you to buy someone's garbage can at the end of the day. Um, so, so that's kind of what I worry about um, in terms of sort of the amount of data that's out there and, and what people can do with it at the end of the day. But I think the good news is, is I also think that um, when people are, become aware that this is happening, I think I, it's, I have a, a thesis, I don't know if it's true, um, but I, I have a hypothesis that, that um, you can sort of actively throw off the scent a bit, right? So there's, it's sort of, if people realize that what they do online isn't them, um, but what they do online is what they choose to do online, right? They can show a persona to different views of the world. So you can have, you know, a Google segment of the world, a Facebook segment of the world, a, a chat segment of the world, these types of things. You can sort of, if, you can, if, you're, if you're good at partitioning your life and sort of giving only different parts to different things, it, the world actually looks kind of, the online world looks a little different, right? I do this a little bit myself. And, uh, and I, and, you know, so I'll, so I'll sort of throw off Twitter until I'm th- recommended a bunch of people to follow that I don't want to follow at all, right? And then I sort of see what Twitter throws at me. I'm like, oh, okay, interesting. Right, so that's that's what the rest that part of the world is saying. That's what it thinks about me at this point in time. And then I'll kind of compare it to another thing that's that's doing stuff to me, and I'll I'll put you know junk into its training algorithms, and see what YouTube is now recommending me. Like, oh, that's crap or whatever it is. And so so you can you can sort of game these things and sort of see what's going on. And I I find it to be 
sort of fun and, and interesting to do, but I think a lot of people don't realize that this is actually, you can just do it, right? It's not, you don't need to be a hacker or some magical person to know how to program. It's just social engineering the tools uh, to, to sort of understand what they do and, and, and use them as tools to your benefit as opposed to being used by them as a tool. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of Helen Nissenbaum's work, right, with the track me not and the uh, ad nauseum. Uh, we'll put those in the show notes. But uh, we're getting close to the hour mark, and I I think that uh, I, a, a significant portion of our audience are are involved in various forms of activism, and I actually think the precursor uh, would be useful for them to learn a little bit about and and maybe even get their hands on one. Could you give the kind of quick pitch of it? The precursor itself, as the name implies, it's a, it's actually a hardware development platform. It's not the 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 final product at this point in time. Um, the final product that we want to make is called Betrusted, which is a device which would be sort of out of the box, usable by activists and journalists, and it would keep them safe and has all the right safe defaults. And um, as I had mentioned earlier in the in the in the podcast, um, I had worked on with um, Ed Snowden to try and build a device that did this, and we failed. And so I this. Be trusted device is the vision of what that device would be. We got as we we've gotten as far as building the hardware. The hardware has come together. It's it's nice. We've talked a little bit in this podcast about how we why, why, the principles of how we might judge if a piece of hardware can be trustable. And I've built the hardware around those principles to allow people to trust it. The software is not done yet. The software is a really big project that's still going to take another couple of years. So. I've taken the hardware, split it out, and turned this thing called Precursor. It's a development platform for people who are interested in building applications like this, who want a trusted hardware base to start from. So if you're a, a person who wants to write software and you're worried that the vendor code inside your Android phone, your iOS phone might be ratting you out, you're worried about the IMEs, you're worried about all these different types of vectors that, can, that, that you're relying upon, these components you don't worry about, that, that you don't know about, um, this is a potential platform for you to look at. Um, and then I'm hoping, you know, once we get a community together and we're writing all this this, this sort of um, applications, we will have a final solution that we can actually give to sort of non-technical end users. You get out of the box and it works the way you think it will work. Um, and I will give it a different name so, you, so you're not confused by this, <laughs> this thing that is actually a development platform versus the actual thing that's the product. They'll look the same, but they'll have a different name. Um, but if you are if you're sort of more of the developer type, you can go to precursor.dev um, P-R-E-C-U-R-S-O-R dot D-E-V. Um, and they'll b- bounce you over to our crowdfunding page. We actually closed the campaign and we funded, um, and you can pre-order them now uh, from that page. Um, and there's all the contact information, GitHub repos, everything like that you want. If you're if you're a developer, you can sort of um, knock yourself out and um, and get into the project. Thanks. Um, thanks so much, Bunny. I think that, that we're going to get ready to wrap up and we have a little ritual at the end of our episodes that we'd like to ask people. Is there anything that you're reading, listening, watching that you would like to share with our listeners? It could be on topic or off. Um, geez. I, 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 I guess in a pandemic, I discovered Twitch for streaming music. <laughs> and so I've been just listening to a lot of different artists and discovering a lot of uh, different genres of music I didn't know about. So um, that's been that's been pretty exciting for me because I really like music and music's a big part of my life. And without, you know, sort of bars and clubs and events around, this has been sort of my fix at the end of the day. 
Um, and then I guess I will ask, is there anything on topic that you would like to recommend to like around hardware if people get educated? Were you disappointed I know that was like a recommendation? Could you just disappointed about my recommendation? <laughs> Twitch on this podcast, Amazon owns it. No, Two. I'm just messing. I fuck with Twitch. One of my like weird <laughs> Twitch like black holes that I've gone down is have you ever watched the far right Twitch streams where they like spread their propaganda while hate watching hoarders? Oh my there's god. A ho- I, there's like I a whole <laughs> what there's a whole what? field and they make crazy bread. Like they oh raise god. money, hate watching hoarders episodes, and spreading spreading like some weird amalgamation of like QAnon, anti-vax, oh, but no. pro-Trump, but maybe also oh, Reagan. No. Like, it's like a weird... What's the ontological connection between hoarders and, like, far-right Nazism? Like, I I don't actually know, but... Oh, it's because hoarders features a lot of, like, working-class people and um, Black people and minorities, and so they're like, oh, look how they live their shitty lives. And so it's, oh, like, a, I guess, like, effectively motivating. Um, but yes, that wow, was that's kind a- of a trick. That's a dark side of Twitch they didn't know about. Now, now I'm a little more sad. <laughs> Sorry. It's all right. Well, it's, it's a better, tool. Better than all. I know. Better than I know. Mm-hmm. Dope. Uh, well, thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to episode two of season three. This is the We Be Imagining podcast. You can find us on Columbia University's The American Assembly website, as well as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Um, oh, also, we will link our Patreon in the show notes. Um, all of our episodes will continue to be free and publicly accessible but if you want to support more of the work that we're doing um and we're also working out working on pushing out more episodes please consider becoming a patreon member and thanks that's it folks bye